0: and welcome back to Rising. We have yet another great show for you today. I am joined at the desk by Amber Athey, your Rising Friday co-host, And she's filling in for Robbie while he continues his Roman holiday. Amber, it's so good to be with you today. It's wonderful to be with you. This is our first time hosting together. It is. I feel like we have been remote. I've been here and Mm -hmm. you've been on the TV or vice versa. But it is a real pleasure to be sitting in person with you at the desk. Yeah, sure. Okay,
1: so let us know what is up first today on the docket. Absolutely. The Trump campaign is calling on the RNC to put an end to future debates in order to, quote, train our fire on President Joe Biden. Trump campaign senior adviser Chris Lasavita said in a statement tonight's GOP debate was as boring and inconsequential as the first debate and nothing that was said will change the dynamics of the primary contest being dominated by President Trump. He goes on to say the RNC should immediately put an end to any further primary debates so we can train our fire on crooked Joe Biden and quit wasting time and money that could be going to evicting Biden from the White House.
0: Mm. This was, of course, in reaction to last night's second Republican presidential debate, which former President Trump did not attend. None of the contenders are within spinning distance in polls to Trump, adding to the tension, or rather the lack thereof. Let's go over some of the highlights. Here is former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley taking a swipe at entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy.
2: This is infuriating because TikTok <laughs> is one of the
3: most dangerous social sure. media apps yes, that is. we could have. And what you've got, I honestly, every time I hear you, I feel a little bit dumber for what you say hmm. because I can't believe no, they hear you've Haley got a
4: TikTok a. situation. What they're doing is these 150 million people are on TikTok. <laughs> that means they can get your contacts, they can get your financial information, they can get your emails, they can Let get me just text say, messages, they can get all this of these important. things. This is important. Exactly this is This is very and what we've party, seen and I'm is say, you've gone and you've helped China stop. build, make medicines will, in China, not America. You are now
5: wanting kids to go and get on the
3: social media that's dangerous for all of no. us. You went and you were in business with the Chinese that gave Hunter Biden five million dollars. We can't trust you. We so can't let me, trust you. Let me we say can't something. have TikTok no, and no, ban Analytica. Mr. Ramaswamy, you yes. have 15 you. seconds. I think. Excuse me.
5: You have 15 seconds, Mr. Ramaswamy. Thank you. I THINK WE WOULD BE BETTER SERVED AS A REPUBLICAN PARTY IF WE'RE NOT SITTING HERE HURLING PERSONAL INSULTS AND ACTUALLY HAVE A LEGITIMATE DEBATE ABOUT POLICY.
1: FLORIDA GOVERNOR RON DESANTIS TOOK A SHOT AT TRUMP CONCERNING THE NATIONAL DEBT. LET'S WATCH.
4: And YOU KNOW WHO ELSE IS MISSING IN ACTION? DONALD TRUMP IS MISSING IN ACTION. HE SHOULD BE ON THIS STAGE TONIGHT. HE OWES IT TO YOU to defend his record where they added $7.8 trillion to the debt, that set the stage for the inflation that we have now.
0: And former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, this was seemingly the best he could come up with as a dig against the former president. Let's watch.
6: And Donald Trump should be here to answer for that, but he's not. And I want to look at that camera right now and tell you, Donald, I know you're watching. You can't help yourself. I know you're watching, okay? And you're not here tonight. Not because of polls and not because of your indictments. You're not here tonight because you're afraid of being on the stage and defending your record. You're ducking these things. And let me tell you what's going to happen. You keep doing that, no one up here is going to call you Donald Trump anymore. We're going to call you Donald Duck.
1: All right.
0: <laughs> mm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. All I know for sure after watching all two hours of last night's debate is that and within the next— 24 to 48 hours, we're about to get the sickest burn from Donald Trump against <laughs> Chris Christie that we've ever heard. And if I were Chris Christie, I would be scared. Okay, look, let's let's talk about the Trump of it all first and foremost. He obviously wasn't there. And not only that, I believe there was only one question about Trump, which was the last question, which was not really a Trump question, but the moderators asked who the remaining contestants would vote off the island in order to consolidate in a way that made any of them be able to stand a chance against Donald Trump, who was leading in the polls by, like, a 40-point margin. And none of them would answer it. Ron DeSantis kind of (laughs) got in there and said, I'm I'm the bigger person. We're not fighting against each other. I'm not going to say anything about this. Were you surprised about the infrequency with which Donald Trump came up, given that he's the one they really have to beat?
1: Not really, because I think the reality is if you're anyone besides Chris Christie at this point, and maybe Mike Pence, but he can't do it either because he's trying to run on the Trump record, right? Mm -hmm. All of these people have to win at least some portion of Trump's base in order to be successful. Like You can't beat Trump without picking off members of his base. And guess what? The base still loves him. And so if you sit there and outright attack him on basically at least any of his policy issues, and probably a, a big chunk of his personality too, you're just digging your own grave. So I don't think they, they can if they want a path to victory. They're kind of in between a rock and a hard place. So I
0: think that's largely true. But I also did notice that Nikki Haley in the last debate had kind of a breakout performance with um, not the majority, but I think the second highest number of people in polls and in you know post-debate uh, response sessions saying that she did – the best, after Vivek Ramaswamy. And one of the things that people centered on, that they really liked about what she had said, was this criticism of Donald Trump for driving up the deficit. I think there was this understanding that there's a certain degree of integrity that comes from being willing to critique your own party. Ron DeSantis stole her line from the last debate. We just watched him say the same thing about Donald Trump's responsibility for the deficit. So that leads me to believe that there is some appreciation that not all criticisms of Donald Trump fall flat. Enough so that... Ron DeSantis is now plagiarizing Nikki Haley. Do you think that that is going to be effective? Do you think that there's some sense, at least with Ron DeSantis, who's the only one who has a shot in heck at even approaching Donald Trump, that that kind of approach, focusing not on the man or the indictments or any of the truth social of it all or one six or anything like that, but just I'm going to return back to Basic Republican principles. I'm going to actually be a real Republican who cares about the deficit. I'm going
1: to be that guy. It's such a difficult balance because for me, like the deficit is not what I want to hear on that. Nobody cares anymore. It's wild. It's like listening to the 2008 T part. Yeah. I just don't understand it. Um, And maybe that's why people are are viewing it positively because they're attacking Trump on something that literally doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, I think the deficit matters, like, broadly and generally. Do I think it's the top issue that we should be hammering the prospective nominee on? No, I don't. Mm. And like, realistically, if any of these people get elected, besides Trump, are they seriously going to legitimately cut? deficit and cut spending no and to the credit of the moderators I forget which one asked this but but somebody
0: pointed out that if uh, someone someone on the on the debate stage said we're gonna cut the deficit and the moderator said well no no one has cut the deficit in like American history (laughs) so how are you gonna be the first one the moderators I will say asked what I thought were some pretty good questions I saw there was there were a number of conservative commentators, Megan Kelly among them, who felt differently. Uh, I think she tweeted something like, is this a Democratic debate? Because the <laughs> questions seemed, you know, the kind, the le- the kind that uh, uh, someone on the left would ask. But I did think that some of the questions were catered toward, were targeted toward getting solutions to problems that we can all agree exist. As opposed to um, getting someone to blame another person on the stage or a Democrat for X, Y, and Z. Speaking of public response, here's what some Iowa voters had to say post debate ahead of the first state caucuses. Let's watch.
6: It's a show of hands now. Okay, I'm doing alphabetical order. Who you think did best during this debate? All of you. Burger. One. Christine. Okay, so his toughness didn't appeal to anybody tonight. DeSantis. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Haley. One, two, three, four, five, six. Pence. Ramaswamy. One. Scott. All right, so it looks like DeSantis, the winner in this room. Who do you think this was a bad night for? Pence.
1: Pence. 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 Meanwhile, California Governor Gavin Newsom told MSNBC's Rachel Maddow from the spin room of the second GOP debate that this was more of a vice presidential contest rather than one for the presidency. Let's watch.
5: I thought it would be more of a vice presidential debate, but I wasn't even convinced that we saw the next vice president, presidential nominee uh, for Donald Trump on the stage. So look, from Trump's perspective tonight, was great. There was no great breakout. Uh, there, was, there was feeble attempts to take shots at Trump uh, for not showing up.
1: But Trump himself seems to have squashed that idea already. Here he is in Michigan.
3: It's all over television, this speech. You know, we're competing with the job candidates. They're all running for a job. No, they're all job candidates. They want to be in the... uh, They want to... They'll do anything. Secretary of something. They even say VP. I don't know. Does anybody see any VP in the group? I don't think so.
1: Oof. Yeah. Okay.
0: (laughs) Um... Ramaswamy, breakout star, the last one. This time around, at least with these Iowa voters, one person in the group thought he had a good night.
1: Well, he abandoned the thing that made him popular in the first debate, which was being willing to call out the other people on the stage for being bought and paid for, for being essentially like the corporate shills of the Republican Party, right, for being the anti-establishment guy on the stage. Whether or not that's true, whether or not he's trustworthy is a different question. But then he comes into this debate and decides all of a sudden to be respectful and collegial. And it was so fake. Even the other people on that stage, who are equally as fake, were able to call him out on it. Yeah.
0: I do agree. that. The respectful uh, act came off like an act so much so that I I, I resist even saying that he executed respectfulness. Uh, I think he still came <laughs> off have as to kind of Reagan, obnoxious. Guys.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean,
0: I, I want to know from you substantively. Yes, his tone there was a tonal shift, but do you think that some of the things that he has substantively been saying also hurt him? That whole colloquy about birthright citizenship, for example, is that something that Americans care about? A and are invested in getting rid of, especially when someone like Vivek Ramaswamy is himself a beneficiary and and able to run for president because he has birthright citizenship?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think in terms of the immigration question, that's probably lower on the list of priorities for Republican voters. There's definitely like a very online segment of the right Mm -hmm. that is interested in that issue, but immediacy is more about like securing the border, right? Mm-hmm. Um, trying to change the policies that might be pool yeah. factors for illegal immigrants deciding to make the trek to the border and then maybe catch and release policies. But that, that particular issue of birthright, like nobody was really talking about until he injected into, into the conversation. And I feel like he's trying to sort of play the same card that Trump did in 2016, mm. which was let me find this unique issue that nobody on the stage is talking about and force them to either reject it or accept it and I'll be the conversation starter. But he hasn't found whatever that issue is yet that really is going to capture the conversation because there's so many other ones that are already in the top five for voters that the Republican Party is more trusted on according Mm -hmm. to the polls so far. So it's just more politically expedient to focus on those.
0: Yeah, I mean, I. I do think that there is a very small percentage of the population that cares when he and Tim Scott are going back and forth uh, about the Constitution and the 14th Amendment. I think there's even a smaller percentage of the public that cares about the Tim Scott Nikki Haley fight over curtains that we were treated to in the last lap of this debate. There's a lot that we still haven't touched upon, um, but I'm sure there'll be tons and tons of commentary about this debate. We're going to move on to some other news, uh, but please do stick around. We'll have more rising for you right after this.
1: The first impeachment hearing against President Joe Biden is taking place as we speak. Let's check in on what we know so far. Here's part of House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan's opening statement.
5: This is a tale as old as time. Politician takes action that makes money for his family, and then he tries to conceal it. Never forget four fundamental facts. Hunter Biden gets put on the board of Burisma gets paid a lot of money. Hunter Biden's not qualified. Fact number two, to sit on the board. Not my words, his words. He said he got on the board because of the brand, because of the name. Fact number three, the executives at Burisma ask Hunter Biden to weigh in and help them with the pressure they are under from the prosecutor in Ukraine. Fact number four, Joe Biden goes to Ukraine on December 9, 2015, gives the speech attacking the prosecutor that starts the process of getting that guy fired. Those facts, by the way, are consistent with what the confidential human source told the FBI and the FBI recorded in the 1023 form. The same form that the Justice Department didn't want to let this committee see.
0: But Democrats aren't watching idly by. Here's Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin with his rebuttal. Let's watch.
4: All right, so let's get it straight. We're 62 hours away from shutting down the government of the United States of America. And Republicans are launching an impeachment drive based on a long-debunked and discredited lie. No foreign enemy has ever been able to shut down the government of the United States, but now mega-Republicans are about to do just that. But they don't want to cut off public services to the people and deny paychecks to more than a million service members without first launching an impeachment drive, even when they don't have a shred of evidence against President Biden for an impeachable offense. And you think I'm being harsh? Here's what some Republicans have had to say over the last week about the actions of the Republicans as they watch up close, quote, the dysfunction caucus at work, in the words of our GOP colleague from Nebraska, Don Bacon. Clown show, foolishness, terribly misguided, stupidity, failure to lead, lunatics, disgraceful, new low, pathetic, enabling Chairman Xi, People that have serious issues, those folks don't have a plan, show just how broken they are, and individuals that just want to burn the whole
0: place down. White House spokesperson Ian Sam's tweeted out a new NBC poll. It finds that the majority of voters oppose Biden's impeachment hearings as the GOP inquiry begins at 56%. Okay, what do you make of um, Raskin, the Raskin framing that China has never been able to shut down the U.S. government, but Republicans are doing this um, on the eve of a government shutdown. This is not the priority of the American people. It's dividing even the Republican caucus, m- m- reciting all of the negative things that other Republicans um, have said about this impeachment inquiry, the poll sh- suggesting that the public is not with uh, the Freedom Caucus on this. Is it is, is this a, is this something they're going to look back on with regret? Is this helping
1: Republicans? I don't know. Maybe. I mean, I feel like they could have probably kept this in the investigation realm. I thought Chair, Chairman Comer was doing a fine job. I haven't really seen the explanation for how much more power it actually gives them to have the impeachment inquiry versus having the unofficial inquiry that was being conducted by House Oversight. That being said, I mean, I can't be too hard on them because I understand that there is a lot of, at least, circumstantial evidence that suggests that there's major corruption in the Biden family. So
0: what is the circumstantial evidence you think kind of potentially warrants this inquiry if not an impeachment inquiry, an investigation if not an impeachment inquiry?
1: Yeah, I would say there's a few things. I mean, first of all, the fact that Hunter was on the board of these companies, despite having no experience whatsoever, and was making, uh, what, $10,000 a month on the board of Burisma they claim that he never made any money from China. Now, we have this couple hundred thousand dollars that was wired to Joe Biden's address. No evidence, obviously, that Joe Biden never saw that money, but there's some there there. There's the WhatsApp messages from Hunter saying that there was should be 10 percent for the big guy, messaging his Chinese partner and saying, hey, we did our side of the deal. My father took care of his side. Now it's time for you to pony up. You've got the web of offshore companies and bank accounts that they were apparently running these wires through to hide the source of the payments, going to about a dozen Biden family members. So, I think there's enough there there to say, all right, we need to see if this in any way connects to the president. And then when you look at the testimony from the IRS whistleblowers that suggests that they were discouraged from actually looking into the source of Hunter's income, as well as the recipients, um, because they were told that they didn't wanna get too close to Joe Biden, I think there's enough.
0: Yeah, so I gotta say that I am not pro-impeachment, but I am investigation curious, let's say. Fair. Because I hate corruption. Yeah. At the same time, like it or not, and I do not like it, a lot of what's being described, if not all of what's being described, does seem to be part and parcel of how rich and connected people operate in their lives. And I do wonder if part of the reason why this investigation, which has been going on since the Trump administration, the reason it hasn't yielded real fruit is because if Joe and Hunter Biden go down over this, what other heads may roll? Mm. I mean, this point about Uh, Hunter Biden not being qualified for any of the jobs that he was paid handsomely for really resonates with me. It seems unconscionable. It is also true that, you know, Donald Trump made Jared Kushner uh, a senior advisor, a senior advisor, (laughs) and then also the director of the Office of American Innovation.
1: Yeah. Far be it from me to defend Jared Kushner, by the way. I hate that guy. Yeah, so um, but what, what are we been yeah. talking no, about here? I, so I think the, the, what the Republicans still have to show is that there was a tangible policy change that occurred due to the financial benefits that were being yeah. rewarded to either Hunter or Joe or other members of the Biden family. And so on Ukraine, they have this point that Joe fired Victor Shokin and bragged about doing it and mm-hmm. threatened to withhold American aid to Ukraine because Shokin was not uh, or was investigating Burisma while Hunter was on the board. And I think the Democrat response to that is, well, Victor Shokin was already going to be ousted, and he was actually really corrupt anyway. But then there's, it's a weird coincidence that the one company he was actually investigating was Burisma. On the China question, that's a little bit more difficult, right? You have to show something. If it's a quid
0: pro quo, what change in foreign policy did Joe Biden make
1: as a consequence of being paid or getting a kickback or his son getting a kickback? And the struggle with the China policy is that, The Obama administration was pretty soft on China, but the issue is did they just miss the boat like pretty much every other politician until Trump started talking about China in 2015? Or was it because of this connection with Hunter being on the board of the Chinese energy company? And I think the greatest evidence that they have to date of that particular Potential quid pro quo is that when Joe Biden was tasked in 2013 with going to China to talk about their um, demarcation of um, the South China Sea and putting the air defense identification zone there, Joe went over there, he talked to Xi Jinping, and after a long day of diplomacy, Xi Jinping basically said, Go pound sand, we're not changing anything. And after that meeting, um, Joe Biden scurries over with his son, (laughs) who flew on the vice president's jet over to China to meet with his business partners. Joe Biden goes over, he has coffee with the CEO of this Chinese energy company, and they take a, a, a diplomatic photo, I guess you could say, sending maybe the signal that he is more interested in these personal relationships than he is actually talking tough to Chinese officials. And then he gets back to the States and he writes a nice glowing letter of recommendation to make sure that the CEO's gets into college.
0: Yeah. You hipped me to that story. I hadn't heard about the letter of recommendation, but this is is another one of those things where is it political corruption? Is it a political quid pro quo? Or is it the thing that rich people do where in exchange for you giving my son a job, I get your kid into college, which I find to be elitist and unfair and anti-meritocratic. but not illegal and not something that implicates what the, the president being captured in some political scheme where he's acting against the interests of Americans. I mean, he's acting against the interests of other people who are applying to Penn or whatever. <laughs> he's not acting against the interests of, of the country at large in his capacity as president or vice president of the United States.
1: Yeah, I think what makes this rise above other levels of political corruption for me is the introduction of foreign governments and mm-hmm. foreign policy, and the fact that he was the vice president in charge of handling these two countries while he was obviously in the Obama administration. So that gives me greater pause, right, because if you are in fact having a different posture towards foreign countries, um, especially with China, which is the U.S.'s big ol- biggest you know, global rival at this point and was amassing all kinds of power during the Obama administration, that to me is more serious than, um, let's say, I don't know, as just an, as, as an example, let's say Kevin McCarthy has um, a lobbyist friend and he likes whatever issue they're lobbying on behalf of, and then the lobbyist son gets the letter of recommendation. I still hate that. That's corruption, no question. And I would like to root it out on all levels. Mm-hmm. But again, the introduction of the foreign governments troubles me.
0: Like, I appreciate drawing that line. That's a perfectly reasonable place to draw a line. But we're also in a world where Democrats have been pulling their hair out for four years because they say, Donald Trump explicitly tweeted to Putin, help me win this election, get the dirt on Hillary Clinton. That's what he was impeached over with the Ukraine stuff as well. And so it does feel like This is just two parties going back and forth, grasping at straws, because they are dissatisfied with their political fates. And all of this happening, I got to say, on the eve of a government shutdown, after a week where the government managed to very quickly, in a number of days, pass uh, new Senate dress code uh, rules, but we haven't had a minimum wage raise since 2008, 2009. It, it is frustrating, and I don't know that actions like this, even if justified, are going to raise the very low confidence levels that the American people have in government.
1: Yeah, I hear you. Look, I think that in terms of the shutdown question, I was watching, I think it was Fox News the other day, and they were interviewing these Republicans who were involved in this and asking them, you know, if the government does shut down, what does that mean for the Biden investigation? And I think you're right. Like that's the least the of Biden investigation. What does but it mean for border it. funding? Right. Pause it. The, 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 like, <laughs> and then come back to for, it later re- when the government reopens. Republicans <laughs> are
0: saying there's a crisis at the border. They don't want to fund the border agents. They don't. They don't want to fund the, AL, uh, the administrative law judges. They don't want to fund. I mean, they don't want to fund soldiers. I, 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 there's no consistency here. I don't know. I, I, we, we have to wrap this segment, but. Uh, we'll, we'll have more on uh, government dysfunction coming up. <laughs> Don't have any doubt. Stick around. We're rising after this. Former President Donald Trump addressed United Auto Workers in Michigan last night at non-union factory Drake Enterprises, an audience that, according to NBC News, only included a few of the striking workers. His speech made multiple crooked Joe Biden jabs, including at the current president's electric vehicle mandate and the impact it will have on auto manufacturing in the United States.
3: Under crooked Joe Biden, you have none of this, you have none of the things we want. Instead of economic nationalism, you have ultra-left-wing globalism. They hate our country. And the workers of America are getting Put it very nicely, screwed, you getting screwed. Yesterday, Joe Biden came to Michigan to pose for photos at the picket line. But it's his policies that send Michigan auto workers to the unemployment line. He only came after I announced that I would be here. You know who he announced? Quite a bit later. Spoke for a few seconds. Did you notice he spoke for what, a few seconds? and he had absolutely no idea what he was saying. Biden's cruel and ridiculous electrical. Think of this, he wants electric vehicle mandates that will spell the death of the U.S. auto industry, you know.
0: The former president also called on the auto workers to endorse him in 2024. But we will stop
3: him. Hopefully your leaders at United Auto Workers will endorse Donald Trump.
1: According to the Detroit News, about 400 to 500 Trump supporters were inside the facility for the speech, but it was not clear how many autoworkers were inside for the speech. One individual in the crowd who held a sign that said union members for Trump reportedly acknowledged that she was not a union member when approached by a Detroit News reporter after the event. Also according to Detroit News, another person with a sign that read "Auto Workers for Trump said that he was not an auto worker. Friend of the show Bhatia Ungar Sangar wrote on X last night, Trump is currently laying out an entire economic agenda to protect and elevate working class jobs and wages in Michigan. It's exactly what you're not going to hear from the GOP primary candidates in their second debate tonight, which is the obvious reason he's ahead by 30 points.
0: All due respect to Bhatia, I, I didn't hear an agenda uh, for working people. And I think the fact that nobody who, I won't say nobody because I wasn't in the room, It seems from reporting that very few, if any, people who are either auto workers or union workers were even present for his talk, which I think speaks volumes, right? Say what you will about Joe Biden. He was invited there by the UAW workers. And say what you want about whether he did this knowingly, (laughs) and was cognitively (laughs) present, or if it was just a (laughs) gaffe. But when asked whether or not he supports 40% wages for those workers, he said yes. So even if it's performative, even if I do not believe he is the most pro-union president of our lifetime or in history or whatever crazy claim he's been making, that is a substantive commitment to giving the workers what they've been fighting for. Donald Trump is on record as as saying a number of anti-union statements, both as he's running now and during his previous campaigns. As president—I read off a whole list yesterday, I won't do it again on the show—of all of the anti-union policies that he put into effect as president. And I think what we're really seeing now is that when you have a real labor action with people who have been organized in the context of a union and th- at their workforce for real concrete material gains, it is very difficult to use culture wars or rhetoric to distract them from the reality that they have agreed on fighting for certain commitments that someone like Donald Trump simply has not followed through on.
1: Yeah, and look, I think Trump is right on the electric vehicle mandate, and the union president, Sean Fein, basically it copped to that fact, right? He said that does bother the workers because they see that it requires less labor to make EVs. A l- the most expensive part, of the batteries, are made overseas. That's not good for the longevity of the industry. But you're right, it's not addressing the core issue of the workers want to be paid more money now, and they deserve to be paid more money. Um, you know, what percentage is correct, I think we'd probably disagree on. I'm probably more in like the 25 to 30% range. But they haven't had a real wage increase since 2008, and probably even sooner. So, like, yeah, stand with the workers. And none yeah. of the Republicans, including Trump, would say that. And by the way, one of the best parts of Trump's platform in his 2015 to 2016 campaign was reshoring manufacturing, Mm -hmm. was made in America, Mm -hmm. making sure that quality automobiles can be made at cost in the United States and and that these auto companies can be more profitable. And nobody talked about reshoring. I think DeSantis said the word reshoring once during the debate Mm -hmm. last night, and it was on an entirely separate question related to China, which is fine, but it wasn't about protecting the dignity of American union workers. And so I think every single GOP member completely missed on this issue. And it was so frustrating to me because Trump got it in 2016. At least he pretended to get it. Exactly. And now he's run completely in the opposite direction. Exactly. I mean, I
0: think it's harder for him to do that kind of, um, I'm a union guy cosplay, once he's actually been president for four years and has a record to run on. And there was a really interesting dynamic that emerged at the debate. The first question off the top was about the UAW strike a question to Tim Scott about a statement that he had made and got a lot of blowback for where he said, Ronald Reagan gave us a great example when federal employees decided they were going to strike. He said, you strike, you're fired, simple concept to me. He was asked off the bat, you think that striking employees should be fired? And he dodged and prevaricated and said, oh, well, I don't have the capacity as president to uh, fire non-federal employees, so it's kind of a moot point. Then why bring it up in the first place? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And and what what really goes unsaid in the debate is that so many of the people on the stage are governors of southern states, where they are performing the role of a kind of a mini-domestic China, where they have these right-to-work laws that prevent unionizing and make it di- more difficult for workers to get the kinds of advantages in terms of wages that they have in northern states that don't have these right to work laws. And that is why so many companies exploit that reality and move companies to the south. Now they claim it's good for people in the south. They get jobs. They they get they attract industry to their states. But the people who are profiting from them, hand over fist, are the heads of those corporations who then give m- dollars to the governors for enacting those kinds of policies, while the people in those states have to live at substandard conditions than the people in other parts of the country. And this was really put on display how the policies—certain conservative policies disadvantage poor and working people—when Ron DeSantis was asked pointedly why it is that he has an uninsurance rate in Florida that is significantly higher than the national average. When he was first asked the question, he dodged and started talking about God knows what. <laughs> the, the moderators, I gotta give them some credit. They they did they did try.
1: Yeah, re- Dana Perino especially I think performed really well. Yeah, re, re, I don't remember
0: who specifically was asking this one. It was late. I think it, I think it
1: was Dana. <laughs> it was Dana, okay
0: reformulated the question, and he eventually just admitted that, well, we didn't expand Medicaid. Well, we don't have social services here, so that means more people are unemployed. Now you can be a traditional small government conservative and say, it's good that we don't have the social safety net, and if people are unemployed, they got to deal with it. (laughs) But to many people listening to that, they say, oh my God, so if I get sick, if I get cancer, I'm a working person, I have a family. If I live in Florida, if I live in Ron DeSantis' America, that means I'm just on my own?
1: And I think that's what started to rub people the wrong way about Ron DeSantis, is that once he gets on the national stage, it becomes clear that he's really not the populist Republican that he wanted people to believe he was, Mm -hmm. right? Because when he's governor of Florida, he focuses pretty exclusively on cultural issues. Mm -hmm. People are excited that he's a cultural, social conservative. But then you start digging into him on economics. And even on the Ukraine question early Mm -hmm. on, he didn't really have you know what what his stance was going to be on that and you're like oh wait he actually is still kind of that tea party guy that he was when he was in congress mm-hmm. and it's people don't really like that i mean and i think it's important to mention that the people who are in these debate audiences are not the base of the party mm-hmm. right these are people who are consultants they're donors, they're people who work in the party apparatus. And so they have a fundamentally different view of who is performing well, of what the big issues are, of what the proper stances are. So you can't judge based on who was clapping for certain can lines. Um, You can't compare that to what the party and the American people actually want.
0: Absolutely. That's such an important point. All right. Um, we're going to move on to some other topics now, but please do stick around. It's a great show today, and more rising for you right after this.
1: One of China's top virologists, so called Batwoman, Ji Jing Li, predicts that another coronavirus outbreak is likely in the future. Not only that, but she and her colleagues at the Wuhan lab found 20 highly risky coronavirus species.
0: The South China Morning Post reported on Xi's findings, published back in July in the English language journal Emerging Microbes and Infections. But the paper only started circulating on Chinese social media this month. An unnamed source told the outlet that one of the reasons Chinese authorities are downplaying COVID-19, including these findings, is because they want to move on, especially after the abrupt reversal of China's zero COVID policies. According to this same source, some cities have stopped releasing infection data altogether. Okay, so this is the woman who did a lot of the uh, research on viruses that hop from bats to humans. That's why she's been nicknamed Bat Lady, and apparently there are dozens of these uh, diseases that they were working on, and so there's this likelihood, she's saying, that another one of these might escape and become a pandemic. I'm struggling with what the implications of this are because the public, at least in America, is divided on the issue of COVID in some respects, but very united on the idea that it's over, it's not a big deal, the government shouldn't act to intervene in any way. So is this something that we should be afraid of? Or are we all now a to the idea that, oh, it's just like the flu, maybe another million people are gonna die, but people die and they're old people mostly. So meh. I mean, wh- what are we even taking from this at this point?
1: And, well, and I don't know either, because there's really no indication in this reporting of if this is as deadly as the original coronavirus was when it got to the United States, if it's as contagious. That hasn't really been indicated here. So I don't know is the answer. Um, if anything, I think what's gonna come out of this is the potential for politicians in the US and probably public health officials to use this as a means to go back and redebate debate whether or not our policies the first time around worked at all in slowing the pandemic, which they objectively did not.
0: So, what, so then what do you take from that? It is true. I don't even know what the number is. It was it was a million people who were dead before Biden even became president. So who even knows what the ultimate? I mean, I could obviously sit here and Google what the ultimate number was. But even that number is disputed, right? There are many people who say if someone had COVID and then they also died of something else in surgery or in a car accident or whatever, their deaths are recorded as COVID. So you can't even really have a conversation about what the human costs really were. I, It feels like people are very happy with the idea that there should be almost no pandemic response. There's very little to no confidence in the CDC. There seems to be no sense that we should have a public health infrastructure in the least because the perception is that it has such an inclination to be authoritarian and that it could get things wrong, That it's not even worth trying. Is that really the space we wanna be in? The next virus could be more dangerous it could be more infectious. It could be more lethal. We have experienced other uh, health crises like monkeypox, where it was only a crisis because we decided not to pay a million dollars or whatever it was to make sure that we had the the um, vaccines on hand. They had all expired, and we just decided as a society that we're probably not going to have a monkeypox issue. So let's just not replace them, and then it became a little mini crisis as we rushed to manufacture them in time to stop the spread. You know, do, are we really saying that we don't want to have any kind of preventative measures in place, whether it's having certain kind of equipment manufactured here at home so we don't, aren't subject to the supply chain crisis around respirators or masks or protective gear? Or are we saying we're so frustrated with what the government did last time that we're happy to just have a free for all, every man for himself, if something else strikes the country?
1: I think the problem is that Americans haven't seen a concerted effort to make sure that what happened doesn't happen again. The people who were in charge of it were not held accountable for the decisions that they made that led to a a lot of loss of life, particularly with the nursing home scandals Mm -hmm. in New York and in Pennsylvania. And they see these leaders actually getting promoted. I mean, in the case of Rachel Levine, right? I mean, this individual was in charge of the pandemic health response in Pennsylvania and then was promoted to rear admiral after doing the exact same thing with nursing homes that Governor Cuomo did. Um, and, And with Fauci, I mean, he retires and he gets his full pension despite having really sketchy connections with Chinese officials before declaring that he was quite sure That COVID didn't leak from a lab, that it was naturally occurring. Um, So that's why I think people still have so much skepticism and distrust of the public health establishment. And when we go back and look at what happened there, I I, I think everybody, at least on the conservative side, who was skeptical of what they were doing was, was waving the warning flag of this is going to have disastrous, disastrous effects for future health crises because you're going to have this distrust. And so we have to make sure that people are held accountable. And I think in this case, if we were to have another coronavirus pandemic, My response would be, let's make sure that we have therapeutics on hand for early intervention because that was Mm -hmm. one of the big mistakes of the last response was that people were dissuaded from taking therapeutics. They were told to wait for the vaccine. They were put on the ventilators, which were, I think, shown to, to prove that actually it made people's health conditions quite worse when they were suffering from the late stages of a coronavirus infection. And if we're gonna do lockdowns, they need to be targeted to the most vulnerable because the effects on people who were otherwise healthy did not have these comorbidities were awful from both an economic standpoint, from a mental health standpoint, and from a health standpoint. Because yeah. we had people who were told not to go get cancer screenings because they didn't want anyone besides COVID patients in the hospital. Um, so let's let's go to what, I don't know, Dr. Scott Atlas was talking about in the Trump administration. He was proved right on a lot of what he said, which was, let's have lockdowns for elderly people, People who have comorbidities, people who have immunocompromised, uh, you know, symptoms or immunocompromised diseases, and tell them that they should stay home. They should be protected. They should protect themselves. People who, if they get the virus, are going to suffer the flu or cold should probably get it early so that they can develop natural immunity, which has been proven stronger than the immunity that you're given by a vaccine. And if they do end up having side effects, then they should go get a therapeutic.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I do agree that there needed to be more targeting um, of the most vulnerable. I mean, we saw in Florida, which had you know more COVID deaths, particularly because of uh, Ron DeSantis's policies with respect to older, old people's homes, uh, elderly folks' homes was a disastrous was disastrous from a policy perspective. So I completely agree with that, but I think we live in a country where if we said people who work in nursing homes have to be masks masked or people who work in nursing homes have to have vaccines or people who visit nursing homes needed to be masked and vac- vaccinated, you would get a percentage of this country who would be very angry about that. Despite it being exactly the vulnerable populations that we're talking about. And what if we are we do have people in the workforce who are older, or who are diabetic, or who are immunocompromised, or who have asthma, or who have any number of factors. Sometimes we talk about people who are uniquely vulnerable. So that's not a significant portion of the American population. Are we gonna then be in a place where we're willing to say, okay, in the interest of protecting our fellow human beings, we are gonna require, we're all gonna mandate either lockdowns of certain populations, or vaccine or masking requirements of certain populations. You know, are we going to be in a place where we're open to in hospitals, where many people are vulnerable by nature of being in a hospital and have no choice to just avoid the hospital because they need treatment, that we need medical staff members to mask and people in the hospitals to mask? There's been a lot of pushback against even those kinds of notions. So I'm a little skeptical that there's like a common sense mentality that says, well, we can target it the the next time. I do think the public perception is we just don't want anything to be done that has, any kind of government backing behind it, or any requirement? Am I am I being overly cynical?
1: Uh, maybe not. I mean, I think on the mask question, particularly, that's a little bit more difficult because there hasn't been a great study showing that they work super well, particularly with the way people in America wear masks or the type of mask that they wear. I think that's wear. true. The type of mask if and compliance look, are huge issues. I, I genuinely think if you said. People in hospitals who are working with patients who are vulnerable have to wear N95s properly. Mm -hmm. I really don't think there would be major pushback on that. I don't.
0: I think the issue is not just that people people in the hospital who work in the hospital. If I go to the hospital because I'm sick, it's the question of whether I have to take my mask off to do a respiratory test. I have Mm -hmm. to take my mask off to get my tonsils looked at or whatever it is. Patients have to take their masks off. So the one-way masking logic doesn't work so well. Fair. So then what? Are people going to be okay If I go to a hospital with a broken leg and you go into the hospital with a respiratory issue, are you going to be okay with me saying I don't want to wear a mask even though you have to take your mask off and be exposed to whatever I've tracked in? I mean, these are the kinds of questions. And I I understand the public distrust. I understand the public frustration. I understand the the flip-flopping on the mask issue, the confusion around the quality level of the masks and the compliance. I see people with big, hairy beards wearing even in 95. And I'm like, of course that doesn't work. Your your mask <laughs> is sitting three inches off of your face. So there's there's so much that I think has warranted the lack of public trust. But I am concerned, and I've been saying this to Robbie, I've been saying this throughout, that some of the libertarian mindedness is talking people into a place where you're gonna be really abandoned. And this is not the last time a pandemic is gonna happen. And I think that, if, if it were me, I'd be wanting to get the government to correct its mistakes, not to have a, but not to have a hands-off approach. I do
1: think that there's some truth to the fact, though, that the people who are best prepared to determine their risk level is themselves. Like, people know about their own illnesses. They know whether they're immunocompromised. They know if they have a comorbidity. And I think that mand- the mandates really, I think, upset people from a— from the libertarian freedom standpoint that you mentioned, because it didn't allow them the amount of freedom that they needed to make risk decisions for themselves. And I'll give you an example, okay? Sure. So like my grandparents, my, grandf- my grandmother just turned 80 years old. My grandfather, I think is like 85, maybe he's 87, somewhere in that range, right? They're old. And uh, early in the pandemic, my birthday came up. It was June 1st of, in 2020. And they came over and we had a backyard barbecue and we had this plan where they were gonna sit socially distanced away from everybody else. They were gonna sit in their lawn chairs over in the corner. And they kept inching closer. And we were like, what are you guys doing? And then we, they'd go inside to get more potato salad and they would not have put their mask back on. And we were so frustrated because at that time, it was still early days, mm-hmm. right? People didn't really know what things were working and what and what and uh, which ones weren't. And they, wanted to make the decision for themselves. I'm gonna die of something, whether it's COVID or just me being 85 years old. And I want the opportunity to be able to sit next to my granddaughter and, and my family members without wearing a mask, and I want them to see my smile. And if I get COVID, then I'm okay with that. And uh, I think the government response didn't give people that opportunity to make those decisions for themselves. You're telling a story
0: about how you were, in fact, able to make those decisions during the pandemic. Yeah, and we we broke the the rules. But that's 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 why I really I'm sorry. The words lockdown and stuff it's it becomes absurd. No, we were in China. Were, mothers were we arrested were for taking their people, kids to okay, the park.
1: You, I mean it's crazy. It was crazy.
0: There were silly. Barricades put up around parks and outdoor spaces I would never dispute that that stuff in retrospect was ridiculous But to your point that's in retrospect even you at the time were concerned about what the proximity of your grandparents meant And there was no mandate that said that you and the company of your home could Put your
1: hands on your hips and hack germs straight into your grandmother's mouth if that's what you wanted but to do. But there were restrictions about the number of people that you could have in your home. There were restric- There were all kinds of restrictions like that there from the government. There were the
0: Gestapo coming around telling you you couldn't convene in your own house. It's
1: just a representation three, of there what actually happened. There were literally neighbors happened. calling the cops on each other for having guys, too many people at a party. It was- Did that happen to you? Did you witness that? It didn't happen to me. Oh, is this one there of those cat litter box in the no, in, in in elementary le- school no, bathroom stories? No, there are legitimate reports about the way that neighbors were snitching on each other, the way that if you, you go to, I mean, perfect example, of the park example, if you're a mother who takes her kid to the park and you go under the police rope or the caution tape, and a policeman literally comes up and threatens to arrest you in front of your child. People shouldn't snitch. People snitch on each other for noise complaints every day. People call the cops on each other for all but kinds that's why of reasons. But mand- that's why the mandates are, are fundamentally are awful, because you're saying, like, oh, people break the rules all the time. But we do live in a society where no, there are I, a look, lot of people if, who if tell you're on telling each There was a
0: rule that was a violation of the law for people to be uh, over a certain uh, number of people per square footage in a house. I never saw that. I've never heard yeah, of that. Yeah, it was
1: like six people at one if, point.
0: If you... Especially in,
1: in major cities like San no, Francisco. No, in your own and, home.
0: Yes, correct. No, there's no way they could enforce that because more than, people just live in their houses. There's families that are bigger than six people just live Right, it was just people outside of your immediate household was the okay. regulation. If you demonstrate <laughs> to me that that was ever enforced, I, I can sit here and say, obviously, I don't yeah. think that that should be enforced. But using a story like that, as that that shields the government from any responsibility if there is another global pandemic that kills literally millions of people just be careful
1: what you wish for Look, that's I've, all i'm I've, saying i've conceded that i want a public health response i'm just explaining you're not going to get one well and <laughs> you're I'm, not going to get one and i'm explaining because everyone's that, decided they do want one well and and what i'm saying is that the people who were responsible for things like that need to be held accountable and removed from the public health bureaucracy fine. I think that's fine. Before but, people trust them but you've again. You've got the
0: Republican candidates all saying, well, let's just defund the CDC altogether. And that's my only concern. I'm happy for Fauci. I don't care if he is found criminally liable and thrown in jail. I don't, I'm not, I don't have an investment in any of these people. I think that people should be accountable for their mistakes. What I don't think is that we should live in a libertarian hellscape where we're all shuttered in our houses by choice, because if we go outside, we could die, and there's no one who's going to come and help. Well,
1: I'm not a libertarian, <laughs> so I'm not going to argue with you on that point. I don't want a libertarian hellscape either. But, all right. I'm glad we can yeah. come to
0: that consensus. All right. Stick around. We have more rising right after this. Ozempic has ballooned into a popular weight loss drug with celebrities, physicians, activists and even the media promoting its benefits, not because it may be effective, but because they're being paid by drugmaker Novo Nordisk. New reporting from investigative journalist Lee Fang sheds light on how the media has failed to disclose the potential health risks of the new trendy medication and also the financial ties between the pharmaceutical
1: giant and those who are helping to aggressively push the wonder drug. Here to break his reporting down is Lee Fong himself. Lee, thanks for joining us.
6: Thanks for having me. All
1: right, why don't you give us a rundown of which celebrities we should look out for? (laughs) Who who needs a sponsored Instagram post?
6: Well, look, um, this is a story about a new class of drugs. These are GLP drugs. Um, They essentially imitate a hormone uh, that regulates insulin um originally intended as a diabetes drug um, that's how it was first approved in 2017. um it's now taken off as a weight loss drug um there's there are kind of profound studies and evidence showing um the assistance it can provide for diabetics and you know this could be a game changer and saving a lot of lives um but th- the drug makers Novo Nordisk and now other companies that are getting into this market they're looking at uh the epidemic of obesity in America, a hundred million Americans, something like 44% of adults are struggling with obesity and they're seeing dollar signs. So they're hoping to create a market, uh, focused on obesity rather than diabetes as, as a focus. And, and one way that they're doing this is shaping the media coverage of how people talk about weight loss, how they talk about obesity. And there are dozens, if not hundreds of media articles in the last two years uh, that, quote, physicians, patient groups, uh, activists, civil rights organizations, consumer rights organizations, you know, the list goes on. And the media is failing to disclose that these are individuals and organizations that are funded by the companies that stand to benefit. And this could be really one of the biggest financial windfalls of all time for big pharma. Um, Just to give you a perspective of how big this market could be JP Morgan recently did an estimate that within 10 years the GOP market uh, could be worth something like 80 billion dollars. That's more than the revenue of uh, Pfizer's vaccine at the peak of the pandemic. And this is very different than a vaccine because a vaccine is essentially a one-time event. Um, these drugs you have to kind of for the benefit, you have to stay on them on a monthly basis, per- perhaps for life. Um, the, the benefits go away immediately if you get off of them. So this is a, a a huge potential cash cow for big farmers. So they're investing heavily in lobbying, public relations, and advertising. Often, uh, uh, missing the potential uh, downsides of the drug. You know, we d- we don't know all the full effects for um, weight loss. Uh, there are some very serious side effects that are now being reported. Um, people uh, reporting uh, stomach paralysis, uh, difficulty digesting, um, potential cancer risk, and. Uh, you know, the, the, the simple fact is that, uh, you know, for anyone uh, considering this, you know, we have this American issue where people uh, consult their advertisers, you know, the, the media, rather than really talking to their doctor and figuring out what, what's the appropriate intervention for them.
0: So I am very sympathetic to the concern around... Uh, drug advertising most countries do not allow pharmaceutical companies to advertise to advertise direct to the public. We used to not allow that in the country. that was part of one of the wonderful innovations of deregulation uh, that we now enjoy and have to contend with uh, marketing for bladder and colon issues when you just want to watch an episode of Star Trek late at night. But all of that aside, it does seem to be evident that the drug is effective for a large you know a large percentage of users. Some people do experience side effects. But that is not uncommon for any number of drugs. So what is the concern here? There there does also seem to be a lot of organic interest in this drug, as it is one of the first, if only, proven effective drug that gets at this weight loss crisis, which you rightly describe as an epidemic. How do you tease out what is kind of an organic uh, public interest in what seems like a miracle drug? from targeted advertising which is perhaps not fully disclosing side effects?
6: This drug could be very beneficial to people struggling with obesity as well. You know, um, I, I don't want to have, you know, I, I want to be very clear about that. Um, but what when we, when we look at any type of new pharmaceutical intervention, we need to have a very clear-minded view of this. We need to have uh, a, a trans- transparency in the debate, Uh, If you have an advertisement, you know, at least we have these regulations that require uh, disclosure of who paid for the advertisement. There has to be a tagline at the end. Um, But there's no such regulation or rule for uh, the media. Um, You you look at these dozens, if not hundreds of news articles, broadcasts, radio, in in some cases, social media, uh, promotion of these drugs, um, touting the drug and its dazzling benefits without any disclosure or discussion of the potential risks, uh, and they're quoting physicians who are, you know, incredibly credible experts, or patient advocacy groups, or, or other very kind of well esteemed or credentialed organizations. And there's no disclosure that they're paid by the manufacturer. Uh, that they're, in some cases, they're actually uh, working on behalf of some of these trade groups and, and public relations firms that are lobbying every day on Capitol Hill. To expand, um, you know, the Medicare coverage and and some of the payment issues around um, these GOP drugs, you know, I think that's the problem. You know, we we have a system that's clouded by money, um, by lobbying. Uh, we need to have a more patient-focused, a physician-focused approach to medicine in this country.
1: Yeah, I mean, to be completely honest,ly when I hear something being touted as a wonder drug or a miracle drug, my alarm bells immediately start going off. I think this has got to be too good to be true, and you know, just as a journalist, I get these emails on a a continuous basis from both PR sides of this, from one side talking about the amazing benefits of drugs like Ozempic, and then I get emails saying that there are concerns about fertility or stomach issues and some of the other side effects that you mentioned. And I was just hoping maybe you could speak to how well these drugs have been tested in the long term, right? Because as you said their effects wear off immediately when you stop taking them, and some people are staying on them for it seems longer and longer periods of time. So what is the background in terms of long-term side effects and research into that for these drugs?
6: Well, look, Novanoris discloses very common side effects um, like nausea, um, some, some stomach issues, some rare uh, side effects like thyroid cancer, uh, but they don't disclose, and what's emerging is, is this stomach paralysis issue that, you know, p- some people are reporting that the digestive system, the stomach, basically stops working. Food just kind of kind of sits there, and these effects seem to be very long-lasting. Um, there's emerging research around these side effects. And generally speaking, we, we just don't see these, we don't have a, 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 enough of a discussion around the issues around body image. We see anorexics and people with body image issues becoming addicted, to these drugs, you um, don't need them. You know, these are not people struggling with obesity. These are not people struggling with uh, diabetes. Uh, these are people um, with some other psychological issues going on. Now, but just broadly speaking, uh, these this, these drugs used for weight loss are relatively new. You know, uh, semaglutide, which is the, the drug, which is you know marketed as Wegovy and Ozempic, um, it was only approved for weight loss, uh, I believe, about two years ago. It's relatively new. You know, Pfizer, Eli Lilly, uh, Amgen uh, have GLP drugs coming to the market. Um, this is this is all a, a relatively new class of drugs, and especially in terms of inter- interventions for weight loss, and and just just gen- generally speaking, you know, Bree is right about this rare U.S. dynamic where we're one of the I, I believe one or three countries, two or three countries that allow direct-to-consumer TV advertising of, of drugs uh, in this manner. Um, we see this kind of uh, new dynamic in the last 30 years where drug makers are also, you know, paying dozens, if not hundreds, of patient advocacy groups and think tanks in D.C. and other outside groups to create a market for their own drugs. You know, we saw this with Roche and Genentech creating a market for a Tamiflu. They basically concocted fake news stories and paid off politicians. To lobby the pol- lobby the government back in 2006 to demand that the that the Bush administration buy a billion dollars worth of tamiflu, uh, we saw this with Purdue Pharma and Oxycontin, where they paid off you know uh, you know uh, pain advocacy groups patients with with pain to create and manufacture this demand uh, that physicians prescribe more Oxycontin and and other uh, dangerous opioids. Uh, we see some of that dynamic with the vaccine debate where the vaccine manufacturers. Uh, very surreptitiously, in a stealth way, lobbied for a lot of the vaccine mandates. You know, not to say that any of these drugs don't have some merit, but we, we see this dynamic happening over and over again in society, where pharma companies manufacture grassroots, what, what appears like grassroots demand for their products. They manufacture lobbying and, and other kind of dynamics that, that you see in the media, where you, you see where they, there's kind of a appearance of a mass demand for their products, produces billions of dollars in profit. And, you know, I, I, I see this dynamic here, and you know I think the evidence is very clear from my reporting this week that uh, an aspect of this is happening with the GOP drugs.
0: Mm. Well, thank you for that reporting, Lee. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Our next guest says there's a big lie taking over America. Let's watch.
2: There's a big lie in America. But it's not about donald trump or his delusions that he won the election the real big lie the one you feel every day that pits neighbors against neighbors is the one that says for me to do well you have to do worse that we can't take care of each other and still prosper that if some people get ahead everyone else has to be left behind well i spent the last four years on the montgomery county council serving over a million Marylanders, fighting to get rents down, build more affordable housing, and take on racial injustice to prove that lie wrong.
0: Joining us now is Council Member at Large in Montgomery County, Maryland, and Democratic candidate for U.S. Senate, Will Jawando. Welcome, Will.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: All right, let's start talking about why you chose to frame that campaign video around this idea of a big lie and how much traction, in your view, that kind of framing is having as you start to talk to people uh, around Maryland about your campaign.
2: You know, it's really great, Brianna, when you say something that's actually resonating with folks that's true. And I think so much of what's going on in our politics right now in our country is the scapegoating, this zero-sum game thinking that If I help the immigrant, uh, that means my life is less. If I provide someone with basic income to meet their daily needs or rental assistance, that is coming from a pot that is gonna take something away from me. Um, And I just think that's not true. We live in the wealthiest nation in the history of the world. Uh, And we are a great nation when we open our borders, when we let folks in, when we help them, when they can contribute to our economy. And when you take that pressure off of people it's not just good for the individual Uh, it's good for our entire country we grow we innovate uh, we solve problems Um, and i think just so much of what's going on in politics right now and donald trump certainly is a big part of it but he wasn't the first to do it is this saying that in order for you to do well i have to do worse i reject it Uh, and i think it's resonating with marylanders and a lot of americans who are just like look we want you to solve problems We want to be able to retire with dignity, to send our kids to a good school, to live in a safe neighborhood, to earn a a wage that pays uh, a living wage that allows us to take care of our families to have affordable housing, go to school, be able to afford it. And we want people who are trying to solve those problems and not being told that if you help someone do those things that you're taking from someone else. It's not true. It doesn't have to be that way.
1: I appreciate your your point that economics is generally not a zero-sum game. I mean, that's 100 percent accurate. But it's a little bit, I think, myopic on your points regarding the flow of immigration and a lot of the social programs that you want to fund. I mean, realistically, people's taxes are gonna have to go up if you wanna pay for those programs. And already they're feeling the squeeze of inflation. They're feeling the squeeze of government imposition in their lives. So how are you going to make the case to Marylanders that your program is not going to have a substantial effect on their ability to take home more of their hard-earned money?
2: I'll give you a perfect example. I launched the first guaranteed income program in the state of Maryland. It's, It's on my agenda that we launched just this week to set up a federal guaranteed income program, which we tried with the stimulus and and the child tax credit is a version of that for people who have children. Uh, We did 300 families, giving them $800 a month for two years, half the money from philanthropy, half from our government. And I just met with a. We're about a year into it. I met with about a hundred of those families. One mom is using it uh, to get out of debt so she can purchase a home. Another family is using it to pay their minivan payment so they can take their kids to after-school activities. Um, and that's not just good for them. It's good for we know when kids are on track from three to six, they're going to do better in school and be less likely to uh, be involved in antisocial or mental health issues for themselves. Uh, we know communities will be safer. We know when people buy homes, it's good for stability for them and their families in the community. Uh, the other thing is that when you give people money, uh, you can reduce other programs that you have to go around for here for housing, to here for food, and you might be able to eliminate if done at scale, some of these other programs and bureaucracy that are always under enrolled and, and can create hurdles for people getting in the program. So I think there's a way to help people but also potentially reduce some of the administrative costs. So that's an example. Another one is immigration, right? We need to have an orderly process. We need to make sure that people can present and be seen by a judge and that it goes, you're not just having a porous border, but look at the way this country was built. We were built on immigration. My, my father came from Nigeria on a scholarship here and became an IT professional. My great-great-grandfather on my mom's side came to this country from Czech Republic Uh, seeking opportunity and built a family farm and a business. That's what America has done. And we're at best when we do that. And that's why we became the most wealthy and the prosperous nation in the world. It doesn't always work well. It's not always equal, but immigration is a good thing for us. So I I don't think that uh, we need to have an orderly process, but these are not zero sum game. And I think most people understand that.
0: I'm curious what you make, uh, given that you have some personal experience in this matter. Of uh, last night's Republican debate, where Vivek Ramaswamy continued his case against birthright citizenship, despite himself being uh, an American because of birthright citizenship, he made a distinction between birthright citizenship for undocumented people versus people who immigrated here legally. Uh, but what do you make of uh, what do you make of that particular battle he's picking?
2: Well, it's totally disingenuous. Not only is for himself and his own family history, but for America's history, right? Look. Immigrants came here, built this country. Some were brought here forcibly. The descendants of slaves, um, but made this country their home and made the best out of the situation. Everyone dealt with some level of discrimination, but we moved forward, right, as a nation, and we're still moving forward. And it's not perfect; it's not linear. But to say that, uh, okay, done, our, you know what we've done over these last several hundred years, we're we're not bringing anyone else in. We're not letting them to be, become citizens because I'm here. It is the epitome of the zero-sum game thinking. It is the epitome of the big lie. I think a lot of, in a lot of ways, Vikram is a uh, kind of a stand-in for Donald Trump at these debates. Certainly, that was the case at the first debate. Uh, he is, one, parroting those same kind of, if someone else does well, you do worse themes. And I think it's totally disingenuous, and it's just historically inaccurate. Uh, and it doesn't do anything for the person who's struggling, trying to make it. Uh, trying to deal with their daily lives. All it does is create a scapegoat, a straw man to say, well, that's why I'm having my problems. And it avoids focusing on the the issues that can actually improve people's lives.
1: Just going back for a second on your previous point, um, your point is well taken that those programs may have been very beneficial for people. I guess my broader point is where is the money coming from, though? And on a larger scale, when we look at your broader policy agenda, which is very progressive. How are we going to pay for this? And how are Marylanders going to pay for that? And I'm also curious on a, a broader, I guess, campaign point. Um, how is your message resonating in some of the redder counties in Maryland, like Frederick, Garrett, Carroll County, and, and some on the Eastern Shore? Are they receptive to what I'd consider probably one of the most left wing campaigns I've seen in Maryland?
2: Yeah, well, you know, I think it, it, it's receptive everywhere. I was on the Eastern Shore yesterday. Everyone wants the same things. Red, blue, purple, any race and ethnicity. They want to have a good school. They want to have a job that pays the living wage, the dignity of work. They want to have a fair system. They want their bodily autonomy. They don't want government to tell them what they can and can't do with their own bodies, with who they love, et cetera. And they want to retire with dignity and know that that security is going to be there. And I think that cuts across any uh, part of the state, any part of this country. And, and what I've really seen in delivering this message is, look, people also know that insecurity and inequality are at record rates. The average American, average Marylander can't find $400 in an emergency. They know how expensive it is to pay for their rent or mortgage. They want solutions that are going to address that. And, and what I tell folks is, look, at a time when inequality is out of control, uh, when tax, when corporations are paying almost zero taxes, uh, in some cases, when you have, billionaires that own most of the wealth people say well that's not right let's make it a more fair even playing field and and that's how you can pay for some of these programs but also they, they realize when you invest in people you know I created the largest jobs program for kids in our county's history tens of thousands of kids when you invest in people they actually produce more which helps our tax base grow when you get people take care of their basic needs they can actually start that business take that loan go back to school, take a risk. I'll give you a scary scary statistic. 50 years ago, patent holders used to be uh, equally distributed among all income brackets. Now they're concentrated in the top 1% of earners. It's another indicator that we have made it too hard to have an idea, to have that American spirit of innovation because people are struggling to meet daily needs. And so I actually think people not only want it for themselves, but they can see that, hey, if you relieve some of this pressure, uh, we can actually grow as a country, which is good for all of us.
0: Mm. Let's get into some of the policy points of this progressive agenda. You recently rolled out your policy agenda, and it includes abolishing the filibuster, establishing a guaranteed income program, incentivizing rent stabilization, and delivering on Medicare for all. Uh, among other things, what do you make of President Biden, who has been not, shall we say, uh, supportive of all of those agenda items. He is someone who said that he would veto Mediter- Medicare for All, even if it passed Congress and landed on his desk. And there has been a great deal of frustration among progressives who were a part of the Bernie movement and were supportive of squad members, et cetera, that mums the word in the last year, year or two since Biden's been in office with respect to the entire progressive agenda. How do you expect to make headway uh, with this agenda as part of a Congress that is largely out of step with the progressive interests
2: of the democratic populace? Well, I think one, you know, you know, we've talked about this before, Brianna, as I've been a guest on this show, uh, I think President Biden has moved to the left and has has changed and been for things that he previously in his career wasn't for. Um, I think it's our job, that's why I'm running a proudly progressive campaign uh, to move that Overton window about what is possible you know, I was in the White House when then Vice President Biden and President Obama, when we passed Obamacare, we didn't get a public option, which was is, again is not Medicare for All, but which which would have helped a lot. And I think put us on a quicker path to Medicare for All, which if you ask anybody, one of my favorite people in the world is Marion Wright Edelman of the Children's Defense Fund, who toured with Bobby Kennedy in Mississippi years ago, the poverty that was down there and has done so much for children and families. She will flat out say, anytime you ask her, what's the healthcare solution, it's Medicare for All. The president knows that uh, the, the question is, how do you get the public will there? How do you take steps towards it? And, I, and I'm confident that if we could move and implement uh, more competition, maybe have a public option to start, we can get to Medicare for all, which is what most of the industrialized world uh, that provides health care has not a sick care system, a health care system that is pre- has preventive care that covers everybody. Why do you think people don't want medicare to go away when you turn 65 and they fight tooth and nail for it because they know even though it's not perfect it works so i think we can push and in maryland we have the opportunity to send a senator to the united states senate uh that can push and help move that overton window it's it might not happen overnight but uh i'm i'm pretty young I, you know at least most of the time i feel like it and I, I i would fight there for a long time to make sure that we got it done
0: but Well, 88 percent of Democrats and 49 percent of Republicans already support Medicare for all. I don't know if it's a public will issue. I think it might be a little bit more of an issue of Joe Biden taking more money from the pharmaceutical companies than any other uh, candidate in the Democratic primary. And I'm not sure persuasion, as opposed to financial incentives, are what's going to move him there. But I certainly am rooting for your efforts. Thank you so much <laughs> for joining us today.
2: I appreciate it. I I remain an optimist. Anyone that gets in this arena has to be, thank you.
0: Remember divisive social media influencer Andrew Tate, who is currently charged with rape, human trafficking, and forming a criminal gang to sexually exploit women? Well he and his brother are blasting critics who say they're responsible for a recent grisly crime. Andrew's brother, Tristan Tate, weighed in on the gruesome killing of a 15-year-old girl in South London by a 17-year-old boy on Wednesday. He railed against a suspect who's now in custody, but in doing so, he emphatically sounded off on critics, blaming him and his brother, Andrew Tate, for influencing the
2: murder. Let's take a look. In a world where every man takes Andrew and Tristan Tate's advice, this does not happen. That is not masculinity. That is the opposite of masculinity. That is acting out to your emotions, feeling sad, feeling rejected, and lashing out with violence. Everything we preach from stoicism, self accountability, emotional control would have prevented this from happening. And it pisses me off that they'll attack Andrew, ban him from schools, plaster his face all over every newspaper, and say that he's a danger.
1: The Tate brothers were not involved in the fatal stabbing, but it didn't stop critics from blaming them on social media, claiming the event is a byproduct of the Tates' rhetoric. Young men are being brainwashed and radicalized by the influencers. Tate was previously banned from various prominent social media platforms for for expressing misogynistic views and for quote-unquote hate speech. Fans of the brothers pushed back against those pointing the finger at them following this grizzly attack. Maintaining violence is in opposition to what they preach.
0: All right, I just want to say up top, there's no connection between the Tate Brothers and this killing. It's not even a situation where there was a manifesto or something where they, we know that the uh, alleged killer followed the Tate Brothers or did so at the instruction or the perceived instruction of the Tate Brothers. There's, there's no there there specifically. That being said, I want to give voice to why people are saying this. Um, the argument is that there is a now widespread and pernicious culture of content creators like the Tate Brothers, who very explicitly talk about using misogynistic language and tools of control to get women to do what they want to do. They say things like, we don't support violence, but there have been videos where the Tates have bragged about their collection of knives and how they can use them to threaten and coerce women to do X, Y, and Z. He's obviously being charged with what is at best characterized as a fraud scheme, where he. Praise on the self esteem of women so that they do uh, sex work on camera for him and pay him all of the vast majority of the profits without keeping any for them, much of it for themselves. He is on camera saying things like, I tell them that I'm collecting this money from them because I need to pay taxes, but there are no taxes, I'm just pocketing it. I mean, the gap between how they present themselves and what they have said on camera is as wide as the grand canyon <laughs> that doesn't mean i think they're directly responsible right. for this of course but we should put in context that there's a reason why people are asking this question if, if what there's a cultural trend that is causing boys to not see girls as full human beings and therefore be more likely to take their lives or do violence against them
1: yeah i find that there is a pre-existing uh, level of mental health concern among young men Um, who feel aggrieved by the system for whatever reason, who feel that their generation is not getting involved in long-term relationships, maybe they're not having as much sex as they would like, and generally feeling a lack of connection amongst their peers and and with society. But that predates the Tate brothers. And I think the problem that I have with generally the sort of manosphere movement, at least a large chunk of it, is that they're prescribing the wrong solution to these disaffected men. Because they're actually sending them further down a rabbit hole of failing to treat other people with respect, failing to see people as fully uh, realized humans, and of basically putting on a show of what they perceive to be an alpha masculinity. Mm -hmm. And the Tate brothers, in their response to being blamed for this grisly crime are Mm -hmm. saying, well, we preach self-control and bottling up your emotions. (laughs) And it's like- As they shout into the camera. (laughs) Right, as they're screaming at the camera. Half naked. (laughs) I don't know if it's like, uh, from my religious perspective, I'm a traditional Catholic. I feel like there is positive masculinity and there are ways to address the disaffected men in our society in ways that support um, the biological deep uh, predispositions of men and, and masculine men in particular. But those values are about responsibility, about actually being in tune with your emotions and knowing when is the proper time to express them and also being protectors and providers. None of that is synonymous with, I think the vision that they present which is more of an aggressive position. And aggression is a part of masculinity that can be used in positive and negative ways. I don't feel like they're using it in a positive yeah,
0: way. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're being exploitative. Right. Um, so this is also coming on the heels of another controversy involving a different Manosphere a streamer named Sneeko. I confess perhaps due to my big age, I had never heard of this uh, young man before this viral video, but apparently this sneaker person did a meet-and-greet and seemed to be shocked by the nature of the statements that these very young boys, they looked to be what, like 10, 11, 12, 13? I- I'm not good at ages, um, uh, were saying. So we can't play the video, but the, the kids were saying to him, F the women, F the women, um, and when he interrupted and said, no, 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 we love all, we love women. The kid said, we love women. Okay. But like not transgenders, they then said F gays, all gays should die. Um, he interrupted again, no, 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 you know, all, all of those kinds of things. And then he looks at the camera and says, what have I done? Kind of like joking, but ha- seemingly a little rattled by what these very young children were saying. He later issued a, a kind of apology and then we just showed a tweet up on the screen, um, where he's injecting himself into this Andrew Tate discourse, uh, quoting somebody who is attributing the murder to incel culture that he is arguably a part of, and saying, well, this is why women shouldn't vote. Not exactly (laughs) making the case that he is someone who is not contributing to the level of misogyny that may or may not have an impact on a 17-year-old boy as he looks at a 15-year-old girl and decides whether or not her life is really valuable.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the disconnect that I have with these people is they hit on some of the, I mean, I guess similar to what I'm saying, the positive aspects of masculinity and ways that men can use those traits for good. They talk about becoming a provider, for example, the Tates do. Mm -hmm. But for them, the end goal is not so you can be in a loving relationship and get married and take care of your family and be an example for your kids. It's so that you can bag women yeah, and so you can have sex with them. And to literally explain them, I mean,
0: he only has money. He makes his money off of exploiting women's labor. He's not bringing home the bacon to support these women. He right. has women. He, he pretends to be in a relationship with them, gets them emotionally entangled, convinces them to go on camera and do sex acts so he can get rich and make and stay poor. That is the opposite of being a provider, even if you subscribe to traditional values. There's also this really toxic, I gotta say, competitive vibe between men and women right now. Every podcast is... Men explaining why they shouldn't have to do things for women, and women explaining why they shouldn't have to do things for men. And the idea of partnership and mutual aid, however that comes, whichever one is the better win- rent winner, whichever one is able, because of their personal skills, better at right, home care or child care or whatever, it seems to be no, I'm going to withhold whatever gifts I can bring to this relationship because it's not reciprocal. And it feels like a Um, race to the bottom.
1: Yes, it's a very transactional view of relationships. I mean, people are basically turning relationships into business arrangements. Yeah, but even if it's transactional, I mean,
0: cynically, marriage has always been a kind of, or historically been a kind of business relationship. But But at least it's it's mutualistic, Exactly. It's supposed to be because it's hard to go it alone. And if you join forces, you can have a better life together. Yes. But everyone's withholding now. It has become this game of who can exploit who, who can get the most out of it. How how can I get a man who makes the most money and I don't have to bring anything to the equation? How can I get a girl who's hot and she's got to do what I want her to do in the home and in bed and all those things without me being a provider or bringing anything, even kindness (laughs) to the (laughs) equation. Right,
1: like I hear this there's this um, female influencer who talks about a lot of the same stuff named Pearl Mm -hmm. and she goes on these rants about how basically women lose all value after 35 Mm -hmm. and it's like okay, you're trying to make the point that like women's fertility declines at a certain point and men want to marry younger women so they can have more babies or whatever. But this is such a cynical view of a relationship again because when you're 35, and, and let's say you get married, and there's plenty of women at 35 who get married because older men also like older women. Well, <laughs> I mean, not not you know what I mean, like I not like mean. in a cougar <laughs> standpoint, but uh, if you're a 40-year-old man, like you're not gonna scoff at a 35-year-old woman if you're healthy. Adjusted. I mean, I sure, I, I, sure. yeah. I'm not, it's, it's not sure, it's not 100% across yes, the board, but yes. you know what I'm trying to say. I know what you're it's trying to It's not about. like a hard and fast rule. Uh huh. But I saw some conservatives responding to her and saying, you know, I value my wife even more now than when we got married because she has now taken a leadership role with our children, right? Mm -hmm. She has either homeschooled or she's in charge of making sure they get to school and she keeps house. And it's like just, I think attaching women's value to just attractiveness and fertility kind of misses the point. Um, I mean, Pearl goes even farther. She says,
0: you know, if you are not a virgin that you have no value, it's not even just about age. And it is interesting, she is both single and uh, not a virgin, so it's unclear where all this kind of weird projection is coming from. But that's none of my business, that's between her and uh, a mental health practitioner, should she choose to see one. All right, (laughs) that's probably it for this segment. Stick around, we have more rising for you right after this. Canada's top officials have expressed apologies and embarrassment for the now infamous standing Nazi ovation in Canada's House of Parliament. Canada's highest ranking general, Wayne Eyer, has been silent on the matter. According to the Ottawa Citizen, the general has declined to apologize for his standing ovation for Yaroslav Hunka, the 98 year old member of the 14th Waffengrinder Division of the SS.
1: Gray Zone writes. According to the reporting, in 2017, Ukraine's Azov Battalion published photos on their website publicizing their meeting with Canadian military officials who had arrived in Ukraine to, quote, help train the notoriously neo-Nazi-infested unit.
0: I I truly don't understand why this is so hard. I mean, there has been some follow-up. There's some suggestion that... This could not have been purely an accident. I mean, I was talking about this um, yesterday with Spencer. At a certain point, it's not about the ceremonial stepping down of someone at the head of the organization. The question that people need answered and want accountability for is how you go to honor someone for their heroism during a war without at any point checking what war it was and what side of it they were on. (laughs)
1: It's what you would think is basic legwork, basic research. And it's sort of a continuous reminder for me of two things. One is that most people in leadership positions in the Western world are complete idiots and very, very lazy. And (laughs) tell us how you really feel. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like most people in power are dumb. They just are. And sometimes I think we assign too much Credit and too much malice when sometimes stupidity can suffice. Mm -hmm. This is probably both. And then the second point is there has been zero skepticism of anything related to Ukraine Mm -hmm. from pretty much everyone in power, too. I mean, this is like classic military industrial complex. Ukraine good, Russia bad, Ukraine can do no wrong, they're the golden child, and we're gonna send them billions of dollars because we need them because they're so democratic and awesome. And anyone who has suggested at any point in time that there are Nazis in Ukraine that are fighting against Russia right now has been derided as pro-Putin, as pro-Russia, as Mm anti-Ukraine, and it's this totally myopic view of the war that's so naive about the way the world works, and it's so frustrating to me. I mean, if you go back to when Tucker still had his show on Fox Mm -hmm. News, he was talking about this stuff, and everyone was like, he's a Russian Putin puppet, Mm -hmm. he's a propagandist. And I just—we're adults. Like, we should be able to approach these issues with some semblance of nuance. Yeah, I mean, as we uh, we played a clip of this yesterday,
0: <clears throat> Trudeau himself, in his apology, characterizes a certain kind of response to this event, his own mistake, his own parliament's mistake, as feeding into Putin's talking points. And he used the opportunity of apologizing for his own— Government's choice to applaud a Nazi to say, well, beware of Putin propaganda, like this is somehow Russia's doing, that you brought a Nazi to right. be honored. Um, I, I was even frustrated to see some um, left commentators um, on uh, show Majority Report. Uh, you know, they criticized this, but then they went on to say, well, yes, the really unfortunate thing about this is that it plays into Putin's hands. I mean, at a certain point, there has to be some introspection about one's own behavior and also this fundamental question of why it is that, accidentally, these Nazis keep popping up, whether it's John Stewart finding out that he had just placed a medal honoring a Nazi—sorry, uh, honoring, you know, I don't know for what purpose, I guess, maybe being a war hero, onto a Nazi Um, to whether it's these uh, photographs that are being incorporated into stories in the New York Times and Washington Post that include soldiers that just so happen to have all of these uh, Nazi-related insignia, either in tattoo form or on their attire. You know, at at a certain point, you have to reckon with the reality that there is some non-trivial number of Nazis that are in Ukraine, that they keep popping up when you try to just take a group shot of a bunch of Ukrainians, and then you have to contend with the reality that... Some of our funding and some of our weapons are going into the hands of people who, back in 2018, the government was wary enough that they slipped into an appropriations bill, a specific provision that says none of these funds should go to Nazis.
1: Should be simple. Where is that caution right. now? And There's none. I mean, there's literally none. Uh, the Pentagon admitted a couple of months ago that there was apparently an accounting error to the tune of $10 billion right. in terms of uh, weaponry that was going to Ukraine. And I don't think anybody believes that this was the result of an accounting error. To me it seems like a convenient way for them to send $10 billion additional dollars worth of weapons to Ukraine without having to go through Congress. And we've seen this time and again throughout this entire war. We have no clear end goal. We have no clear end date of when the U.S. is right. going to stop involvement. It seems that, in fact, many of our leaders want to escalate the conflict. They've rejected calls from Russia to actually sit down at the table mm-hmm. and negotiate an end. And I don't think anyone who questions you know, the, the wrapping up or the conclusion of this conflict um as pro russia like i don't think anyone is is looking at this and saying that it's good that russia might retain part of crimea or it's good that russia might uh, obtain anything beneficial from invading a sovereign yeah. country like nobody thinks that that's good but again, let's look at the reality of the situation. We've sent, I think, $70 to $80 billion to Ukraine at this point. We sent them tons I, of weaponry. I read it
0: yesterday. Some, one accounting said $113
1: billion. Oh, good. $113 <laughs> billion. Yeah. And that's not pushing Ukraine over the finish yeah. line. There's not a, an amount of money that we can spend that is going to to make them win the war, unless we literally send our own military over there, which I, don't, I hope nobody has the appetite for. I mean, our people in power, who knows? Um, but at, at a certain point, you have to say, OK, it's unwinnable. You have to right. negotiate. It has always been unwinnable right. because
0: Russia is a nuclear power. That's the thing with about proxy wars. If you are really saying that we have two nuclear powers facing off, this is what the whole Cold War was about, and, it, we, and we we felt so strongly about endeavoring to prevent. If, if we recognize that without our help, Ukraine is dead in the water, they obviously cannot defeat the Russian army, if only because— Russia has nuclear weapons and Ukraine does not, then you're in a position where you're basically saying you're willing to risk nuclear brinkmanship over this piece of territory. Now, it does not diminish the lives or interests of Ukrainians, it does not diminish the value of that territory, it does not diminish the illegality of Putin's invasion. To recognize that you have to game this out, and I remember having conversations about this when the war first started with some foreign policy experts who at the time had a knee-jerk response to the idea that there would be any kind of territorial concessions. They're like, absolutely, if you concede even one inch of the Donbass, you're validating Putin's actions. And I'm like, emotionally, I understand what you're saying. But in reality, what you're saying is you're willing to sacrifice Untold numbers of Ukrainian lives and a war that you know can't be won unless you're really willing to bring the full might of America America's nuclear power to fight over the sliver of land. And at a certain point, you have to ask yourself, is this really what you're doing in the best interest of Ukrainians? Or are you doing what the State Department has said in so many words over and over again that the goal here is to weaken Russia? At
1: whose expense? Exactly. I mean, I saw these tweets from these bulwark ghouls. I mean, really, that's what they are. Mm-hmm. Talking about how um Uh, any Russian uh, dead body is a good dead body and Russian bloodshed is actually like a positive thing. I mean, what kind of sick person actually believes that? I mean, the Russians who are fighting in this war are not like Putin cronies who are, uh, you know, the evil, evilest people in Across the globe, I mean, the concept of that is ridiculous. We we should be trying to prevent bloodshed on both sides of the conflict. Yeah. Those people don't deserve to die yeah, either. Yeah, they have a draft. Right. You know. And, and then you have uh, the the common argument from members of the establishment, right and left, Republicans and Democrats, that we have to prevent any territorial takeover of Ukraine because it's protecting democracy or saving democracy. Ukraine is one of the most notoriously corrupt countries in the world. First of all, correct. And second of all, did we not learn any lessons from the Iraq War? I mean, really, we just pulled out of Afghanistan after 20 years, with not a single gain to be made. In fact, the Taliban took over almost immediately because the Afghani government was completely unprepared to fight for themselves. And we're going to turn around and say that we need to spend hundreds of billions of dollars and untold lives in order to protect democracy in Ukraine.
0: And it's not working. I think uh, Bryce Green, who we had on the show yesterday, just pulled a screen grab of a map from The New York Times that they published this morning showing The territorial lines of the battle so far, the battle line so far, and he he wrote, at best, you can say that Ukraine has broken even for the entire year. That's what 113 billion dollars has done. What a uh, good investment. Yeah, not to mention the the obvious cost in human life. All right, stick around. We'll have a rising for you right after this.
1: Police and witnesses say more than 100 teenagers launched a coordinated attack on downtown Philadelphia on Tuesday night where they looted and vandalized over a dozen retail storefronts. According to Philly police, stores included Foot Locker, Lululemon and Apple. Um, which were ransacked in quick succession at around 8 p.m. Eastern. So far, over 50 arrests have been made, including 49 adults and three juveniles. Meanwhile, er
0: earlier this week, retail giant Target announced it would be closing nine stores in four states, citing organized retail crime. The stores facing closure are located in New York City, Seattle, California, and Portland, Oregon. However, just this week, a major study released by the National Retail Federation finds that the effect of theft on retailers' bottom lines is largely in line with what it has been in past years. One Twitter user noted a few months ago, someone pointed out that we're closing due to shoplifting. Sounds much better to shareholders than we're closing because we can't compete. And the whole last year of media frenzy made so much more sense after that. So let's start with the Philly story. Um, My understanding is that These events are following a a judge who earlier this week dismissed uh, charges against a police officer who shot someone who was erratically driving uh, point-blank through their window moments after rising on the scene and what many consider to be um, a disproportionate use of force that uh, resulted in this 27-year-old named Eddie uh, Irizarry uh, dying. Um, That being said, I mean, obviously— legal—looting uh, is illegal and wrong. I think there was a question about whether or not there are various media narratives that are being used to fuel uh, various agendas, either by the corporations that own these stores, who would prefer a narrative about how they have to go out of business because of looting as opposed to an um, inability to profit. And uh, uh, another narrative that is helpful to those who want to increase funding to the police, that if people believe that they're in a lawless environment, obviously we can have even more uh, of our already bloated police budgets um, dominating the overall municipal spending. What do you make of all of this?
1: Well, I think there's a interesting difference between perhaps what is being described um, in the tweet that you read off. Uh, in terms of shrink from theft being very similar to past years. I think the fundamental difference with the type of violence that we're seeing in 2023 is that it's coordinated and organized. We're seeing more smash and grabs than shoplifting. And that's not just a profitability problem, but it's a problem for the safety of the people who are actually working in these stores. And it's a, it's a problem with the safety of the people who are shopping and the people who are nearby in these areas. Same thing with this looting question. This is an action that fundamentally has violent undertones to it, if not direct violence. And so for me, this is more of a public safety issue than a profit, profit profitability issue for these businesses. Now, some of them may very well be using this as an excuse to justify losses. There's no question that e is taking out department stores, and had been well before some of this uh, crime has been on the rise. But you see this in connection, too, with the carjackings that have been taking place up 300 percent in D.C., for example, where these uh, young people in particular, are engaging in crime more frequently, and they're engaging in uh, in crime that is, I what we would typically describe as nonviolent, but um, they're doing it in more violent ways. So there's more armed carjackings, there's more looting as opposed to shoplifting, for example.
0: Well, to your point about the safety of people who work in the store, I, I take that very seriously. But in the story that we're talking about right now, all of these um, shops were burglarized uh, per reporting—I'm uh, learning from NBC now—between 12, 10 a.m. and 2.03 a.m. So these were after-store hours. And while that may be an issue in other circumstances, certainly the safety of employees was an issue when we were talking about all of the target, uh, target protests over their choice to sell LGBTQ-related gear. And we had a number of people entering those stores and harassing and then sometimes getting in physical confrontations with workers at the target, that doesn't seem to be the instance here. And that's not to minimize the seriousness of obviously stealing, but this doesn't seem to be an interpersonal um, safety issue or one in which the employees are being targeted in any way. I do—look, I I have no interest in saying it's okay to steal. It obviously isn't. But I do think there's a question to be asked about why there's an emphasis on certain kind of stories and not others. For example, the most common type of threat in America, and Google it, this is undisputed, the most common type of threat in terms of numbers of dollars stolen is wage theft, wage theft. And some of the companies that engage most in wage theft, like Walmart, are the ones that are constantly going to the press about stories about how they can't keep their stores open and how they're losing profits and how we live in a lawless hellscape because of all of the theft from their stores. The employees of Walmart are some of the biggest um, welfare recipients in the United States of America. Our government is subsidizing the salaries of people who work at stores owned by the richest people in the country who won't pay their people a living wage. And instead of having a narrative about why one of the country's biggest employers can't treat its employees right, and are literally stealing wages from their employees in all of these instances, we're having a media frenzy about a group of 50, however many kids it was, 52 who were arrested on Tuesday night, 100 kids, or young people, whomever they were, who did a bad thing, but at a scale that is dwarfed by what these major corporations are doing in tandem with law enforcement, who again precipitated, it seems, some of this out, some of this um, uh, activity uh, earlier this week, because there was a police shooting of a uh, of a driver through the window of his car in a claim of self-defense, and then a criminal justice system that decided not to press charges against the police officer. Does that does that feel at all dissonant to you? The, just the focus, the focus of what this this unholy union that it seems to be that seems to be forming between the police state, which is invented with the sole purpose, the primary purpose of protecting property, and these property owners, these corporations, who are basically using the tax-funded police state to make sure that what is protected is property at all costs, And absolutely no public attention or moral attention paid to all of the theft that is happening from the very communities who are participating in some of this lawless behavior.
1: I think we have to consider, though, that it's not just about protecting corporate profits. The other issue that comes along with these types of very public and large displays of lawlessness is the potential for cities to fall into a doom loop. And this is what we've been seeing in San Francisco. When you have a smash and grab incident like this or a looting incident, your point's well taken that it happened after hours. There are plenty of cases in the past couple of years where they were doing it in broad daylight, particularly over in old town Alexandria, pretty close to where we are now in downtown DC. But when people see that, people don't want to return to the office. They don't want to shop downtown. And these cities quickly become ghost towns. Um, And that's a problem, not just for corporations it's a problem for small businesses it's a problem for restaurants that are independently owned it's a problem for people who live in those areas and who no longer feel safe just even stepping outside of their own home to walk their dogs because there's people throwing bricks at babies in strollers i mean all kinds of horrific incidents so i mean your point is well taken wage theft is an issue certainly it Pretty much always has been the number one theft issue in the country. It always has been, but the reason this story is getting attention now is because it's a broader trend of a rise in violent crime throughout our nation's cities and a reduction of people actually living in those cities due to a a multitude of reasons. Whether it's the lack of people wanting to go back to the office and work in person or the uh, utter closure of upwards of seventy percent of businesses due to the lingering effects of the pandemic and
0: crime. I do want to address your doom doom spiral point. I will say first, I just want to put a number on it, workers in the U.S. have an estimated $50 billion stolen from them every year. So that's a trend if I ever saw one, and I don't mean to be shoehorning that into this segment, but, you know, we don't do. I mean, the media at large tends not to do just random segments on wage theft because it is so pervasive, it's like the air that we breathe, it doesn't seem notable. It doesn't seem—it's uninterrupted, so it doesn't seem like time-pegged and newsworthy. But I do take your point. There is a, a doom spiral in some of these cities like San Francisco. But I would ask you the question of whether or not small businesses, the people that used to make that city one of the most colorful, um, hippie, a hippie haven where so many of our uh, artists that we're so proud of, I was just in Cleveland at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and they have a whole height ashbury like section about you know all of the culture that used to come out of San Francisco. Isn't there a relationship between the fact that housing prices have been driven up by the extreme concentration of wealth that has been brought by the tech industry, which has forced out locals. It's forced out small businesses who can't afford retail spaces. it, It is a hellscape that's created in part because the only people who can afford property in these locations, you've seen it. Every downtown is now just a collection of CVSs and banks. And they're all in the beautiful old buildings that used to be libraries and Banks. (laughs) It's always (laughs) been banks. But you know that the Carnegies and all of these billionaires of old used to build in the public interest in many instances, and who now the only people who can afford the rent are these huge conglomerates who are, I'm sorry, investing in a lot of these public narratives about theft and the fact that police need to be more funded because it's all one giant cycle. You know, a, a, a a fire engine drove by me as I was walking home yesterday. And I smiled and, you know, like nodded to the guys in the truck. And I, I was thinking about how everyone loves firemen, and how it's very mixed feelings on police, mm-hmm. and uh, why that is. It's not that people just woke up one day and said, "I hate service providers," or "I hate when the government puts money behind something." Like, no, we have a sense of who is acting in our interest and in our as members of the public, but who seems to always be protecting folks that aren't us. And I would just I would just put out there that people should consider the relationship between the police state, the stories that we're getting about burglary, the and the and the role that it serves for corporations who are able to attribute any number of failures, despite, as I read earlier, their profits being stable, but being able to sell any kind of failure, store closures, et cetera, on something other than their own financial mis- malfeasance or bad luck in the markets.
1: I want to go back to your um, first point, which was about the driving out of small businesses and locals from cities. And your point is well taken. Uh, one of my biggest criticisms during the pandemic with the lockdowns was you had these major corporations pushing them. and. Nobody was talking about the fact—I mean, a few people were, but not many—were talking about the fact that it's really convenient for them to push lockdowns because those overwhelmingly hurt small businesses that couldn't easily make the transition to e-tail and really required foot traffic in order to survive. Places like Amazon and, and, um, and uh, Macy's and, and Bloomingdale's and, and all of these department stores were already killing it in the retail game. And yeah. so they absolutely do support policies that hurt their small competition and their local competition. Yeah. And I want to revive Main Street. I want to revive local yeah. communities and the civic ties that bring people who own small businesses together with locals. And housing policy is going to be a part of that conversation, yeah. obviously. Yeah. Um, and to your
0: point, the, like a, a huge percentage—I couldn't find the number when I Googled just now—but of the PPP loans went to the top, most wealthiest and biggest businesses who could
1: afford to pay their employees, even with the shutdown, right? Right. The and then also who,
0: who didn't use the funds the way they were supposed to right. use them. I'm gonna—I I mean, have family members who were small business owners who tried to get PPP loans and they were gone. If you didn't have the connections to take advantage of those loans, you didn't get them. So yeah, it it became a gift to the people who didn't need it. I I completely agree. I completely agree. So, I mean, hopefully there's some gains to trade here. There's some some possibility for agreement on this particular issue. The Hill has reached out to the Philadelphia Police Department for comment and we will be sure to cover any updates here. But until then, that does it for us on Rising Today. Amber, it really was a pleasure sitting next to you today. I enjoyed it. Thank you. All right. Come back
1: tomorrow and you can see Jessica Burbank on Rising Friday. Be sure to like, share and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. I'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye.